final parable of the day, uh, Matthew 13, Jesus is painting a new picture as he has done so beautifully in, in the previous parables. He paints a picture about the kingdom of heaven. This time, I think it's a very familiar one to the men uh, that, he, that he is speaking to. Jesus describes the kingdom of heaven like a massive fishing net. We know that at least three of the disciples were professional fishermen, so they immediately would have figured out what Jesus is, is talking about and understanding it very well. Uh, this parable is very similar to the one of the wheat and the weeds. If you go back to that, you'll, you'll see that uh, in verses 24 to 30. In fact, there's a lot of language that's, that's used in both of those, uh, and uh, we won't take time to compare the two, but I would encourage you to do that. But the big difference between the two parables is that the parable of the weeds emphasizes the coexistence of the good and the bad uh, until the the last day, the the wheat and the tares. But the parable of the net, as we'll see this morning, emphasizes the separation that comes at the end. It's the judgment of the good and the bad fish. It's important for the disciples to understand what Jesus is teaching here Uh, Because soon they're going to be entrusted with the message of the kingdom, and they're going to be responsible for carrying it across the borders of Israel and and throughout the whole world. And in the same way, it's important that we understand what Jesus is speaking here, because uh, everything that Jesus has taught was entrusted to the disciples, but it's been passed down to us. And it is, in a way, our responsibility to uh, carry on the mission, spread the gospel of the kingdom until Christ's return. So as we read the parable of the net, I want you to notice the emphasis on the separation of the good and the bad fish. And, and I want you to, to try to uh, identify the three stages that, that, uh, that, that uh, I'm calling here the process of the kingdom. Now, this isn't, this isn't uh, you know, all inclusive and in covering everything there, but in identifying this aspect, if you will, of the kingdom, we, we see there's three stages in this process. So, reading verse 47 Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the first step in the process here is the gathering process. And when we imagine this scenario that Jesus describes here, it's important that we have the the right kind of net in mind. Of course, this is... This is different than the kind of fishing that you or I might do with a rod and a reel. Actually, you would do. I usually don't fish, so it'd just be something that you do. But this kind, uh, this that kind is focused on getting the one. You know, getting the one big one that you that you uh, that you hope to catch with the single hook, with the one line, rod and reel. Uh, Jesus is not referring to this because that kind of fishing is is interested in catching one, and Jesus is catch uh, interested in all of them. Jesus is also not referring to a casting net. You remember when Jesus called uh, Peter and Andrew, James and John to be uh, followers of him, it says that they were mending their nets and very very likely it was a, it was a casting net. Uh, another, another time Jesus came to them and said, cast your nets on the other side. And this was a, a much, a much uh, bigger, uh, a much more profitable way to gather fish, but uh, this is still not the type of net that Jesus is talking about here. This type of net Jesus describes here is, is a dragnet. 
It's a massive net that was, that was stretched between two boats that would, uh, they would stretch it between and it would have weights on the bottom and would sink all the way to the bottom. And then they would begin to make their way towards the shore and capture everything in its wake. If we were to do it today, we'd be catching trash and we'd be catching, uh, uh, soda cans and we'd be catching fish and we'd be catching styrofoam and everything, anything and everything that was in the path of the net would be caught. Another way that they might do it is to attach one end of the net to the shore and then go out from sea and then make their way in and they could do it. But to do this, it required a lot of time and it required a lot of people. You couldn't just pull this net up by yourself. It required a lot of effort and energy. And it was, and this net became like a wall that closed in on the fish and gathered everything in its wake. This is how Jesus describes the kingdom of God. It sweeps through the water and gathers everything in its path. And notice in verse 47, Jesus says that it gathers fish of every kind. I think it's an interesting phrase because that, that word there is used throughout the Scriptures to describe a person's family or race. And I think that there's something to be said there about Jesus referring to the fact that the kingdom of God is not just for Jews, but rather extending to uh, every nationality and every race and color and ethnicity. Very shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven, the gospel exploded into the Gentile world. And the good news spread like wildfire. And uh, many, including ourselves, have come to faith in Jesus Christ because of the message of the kingdom. But by referring to a dragnet, Jesus is explaining that no fish will be left behind. Everything in the wake of the net will be gathered. Just like the wheat and the tares, no one will fall through the cracks. No one will be forgotten and left out. The kingdom will gather everyone. Nobody will be left out, but nobody can also escape its reach. Even today, the kingdom, like a net, is dragging through the waters, gathering men, boys, women, girls, of all ages, of all kinds, for one day. Now, some people refuse to acknowledge that. They say, well, no, that's, that's, you know, I don't believe in God. That's for you. That religion stuff, that's, that's nice if it helps you, but it doesn't help me. But that doesn't mean that the net is not coming through. The net is gathering all people. People may prefer to ignore the reality of God's powerful will, but whether or not people realize it or they refuse to acknowledge it, all people are being gathered by the sweeping power of the kingdom of God. John MacArthur wrote, Men move about within that net as if they were forever free. It may touch them from time to time, as it were, startling them, but they quickly swim away, thinking they have escaped, not realizing they are completely and inescapably encompassed in God's sovereign plan. And one day, the gathering will be over, and the second phase of the kingdom will take place, and that is the separation. Notice verse 48 again. Jesus said, when the net was full, men drew to shore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. We understand that this is at God's appointed time. And just like it was with the wheat and the tares, this is not something that we're supposed to be doing, finding the good and the bad fish, just like we're not supposed to be weeding, we're not sorting fish, it's not our purpose here. But Jesus, this is God's plan. And Jesus said in verse 49, it will happen at the end of the age. One day at God's appointed time, the net will be full And all will be dragged to the shore. They will be separated there into only one of two categories. Either you're good or you're bad. Later on, either you're righteous or you're evil. 
This is how Jesus describes them. Notice that in the gathering process, it was fish of every kind. But in the end, it's just one of two, good or bad. And Jesus describes them here again, as I said, as righteous and evil. At the end of the age, the angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Once the evil and the righteous, the good and the bad fish have been separated, it will begin the third part of the process, that is the judgment. And on that day, those whom God judges to be bad to be evil instead of righteous, he says, are thrown into a fiery furnace. We understand from this Scripture and from other places that Jesus is describing a place called hell, speaking of eternal punishment. And from what we read about hell, hell is a place of every kind of torment that you can imagine. Physically, emotionally, mentally. Everything you can think of, hell is an awful place. There's absolutely nothing fun Nothing good, nothing positive we can say about hell. Possibly the worst part of it is that it will never end. Hell is a place of eternal punishment. One of the most famous Puritan writers of the 17th century was a man named John Bunyan. You probably know him for his, uh, his, his writing, The Pilgrim's Progress. But he, had, he wrote this uh, in describing hell. He said, if after 10,000 years an end should come, there would be comfort. But here is thy misery. Here thou must be forever. When thou seekest what an innumerable company of howling devils thou art among us, thou shalt think this again. This is my portion forever. When thou hast been in hell so many thousand years as there are stars in the firmament or drops in the sea or sands on the seashore, yet thou hast to lie there forever. Oh, this one word ever. How will it torment thy soul? That's the reality of it. People don't like to think about hell. Hell is not a happy thought. And even churches today will just kind of gloss over it because it's not pleasant to think about. And it's not an enjoyable thought. And to think about people dying and and burning and going to a place uh, of, of eternal torment. And we try, to, uh, we try to balance this idea of a God who so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. How could that God send people to a place like this? But it's real. It happens. And if you only hear one thing this morning, hear this. When the kingdom net gathers us all before God one day, how will you be judged? Will you be viewed as a righteous person, fish, or will you be seen as wicked and evil, sent to the judgment of hell? How will you be separated? Will God regard you as good and righteous, ready to inherit the joys of eternal life with Him? Or will God reveal reveal you to be one of those who are evil, who must spend eternity in the fires of hell? Because know this, if, God, if, if any one of us stood before God just as we are, none of us would be seen as righteous. We all stood before God, we would be seen as evil fish, righteous, uh, unrighteous people. There is no one good. All have sinned. There is none righteous. No, not one. But the fact is, Jesus makes the believer righteous. 
Romans 3.21 says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. See, on my own, I'm not righteous. If, if it were up to me at that, mo- at that day when God uh, sorts the fish, uh, there will be only one kind. But because of what Jesus did and because of His righteousness, and it's a word that we, 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 it's called imputed righteousness, but it's credited to our account, God will see those who believe in His Son as righteous. Because the reality is no one is a good person on his own. But Jesus makes bad people good. He makes sinners become saints. Enemies of God become children of God. Dead people become alive. According to God's Word, you are bad. There's no way around it. You're not a good person. The Bible says it. Now you might do nice things, but deep down in your heart and mind, we're not good. (laughs) We don't want to believe that, but God believes it, and His His opinion is the one that matters. But, by the grace of God, through the Son of God, you can have the righteousness of God credited to you. You can be seen as righteous in God's eyes, but only through Jesus Christ. A song we sing often, not in me. And, and, and it goes through and says, there's nothing that I've done. Nothing, no, 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 uh, no, no, nothing I pursued is, is not in me. No, the righteousness that I have is in Jesus, not in me. And a person who believes in Christ, who turns to Christ and repents and believes the gospel, to turn to Him to salvation can be saved from that day. On that day when the net is drawn and the fish are separated, those who believe in Christ will escape the judgment of hell and enjoy the gift of eternal life through Jesus Christ. But if you reject Him, if you reject that message, and as we've seen, and I've, and I've, and I've pointed out several times as we've seen through this kingdom, uh, this kingdom explanation in chapter 13, you cannot be neutral with Christ. You either receive Him or reject Him. And if you reject Christ, the good news of the kingdom, there awaits for you only one future. There awaits for you a judgment that nothing in this world can compare to. So when the net is drawn, when it's full, and drawn in, how will you be seen? Now I have to ask myself as I'm reading through this passage and putting myself in the room with Jesus and His disciples, and when I get to this point, I wonder why Jesus ended His teaching this way. First of all, why end it with hell? Why not ending on a happy, positive note? Why not end it with some unique truth that only they would be able to understand? But also, because the disciples were the only guys in the room. These were the, the, the wheat. These guys weren't the bad fish. These guys were those who believed. They were good. They were righteous because of Christ. They followed Him. Why was He saving this for the disciples? Why wasn't this parable taught to the crowd? Why end it with the reminder of eternal punishment for unbelievers? The best that I can think is is this. Jesus wanted His men to be concerned with other people. Remember when when Jesus called Peter and Andrew and James and John, He said, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. At that point, they were fishers of fish. But Jesus wanted their lives to count for something more than food. He wanted them to have an eternal purpose, an eternal significance. 
And he said, if you follow me, you will become fishers of men and you will make a difference in other people's lives. He wanted them to catch men, to make disciples who follow Jesus like they did and spread his message across the entire world. So Jesus asked them in verse 51, after he finished his teaching, all of his parables, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, yes. Now there's a question here. A lot of people will ask it, and you might have even asked it yourselves, about whether or not the disciples really understood that question right. Um, because just in just a few verses, Jesus is going to rebuke them for essentially not understanding what he's teaching them. They really don't get it as their actions reveal. But when Jesus asked them if they understood and they said they did, Jesus didn't argue the point. And so neither, neither will we. I tend to think that the disciples meant that they understood what they knew. Maybe that they, they believed what they knew. From what we get, we understand. But think about what Jesus is saying here because Jesus is not just saying, do you understand this parable? The parable of the net. He's going back to all of this. Do you understand all of these things? Do you understand that, that, that um, I've been teaching about the kingdom? Do you understand that not everyone will respond to the message of the gospel? Or that some will initially respond but soon fall away? Do you understand that at the present, the weeds will be allowed to grow among the wheat? Do you understand, does it make sense to you, that even though the kingdom may have begun small and insignificant, it will grow great. People will be added to it, and its influence will permeate the world and be unstoppable. Does, do you realize that the kingdom is worth more than anything in this world? That the final separation of the wicked and the righteous, the believing and the unbelieving, the good and the bad, is inevitable and inescapable. Do you realize that the fate of both is eternal? That those who are righteous will be gathered, will be uh, sorted into the containers, they will be brought into eternal life, but those who reject the Messiah will be thrown into a fiery hell forever. And I think, as I put myself in that room again, I imagine... Their minds are rushing with all of the things that Jesus... With that, that one question, do you understand this? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And Jesus doesn't argue the point with them. But I, I think that really that's all they could come up with. Yeah, I, yeah, yes, yes, we do. And apparently that was an appropriate response. It was enough for Jesus because he doesn't really... He just continues on. He goes in verse... Look in verse 52. Therefore... Because of their understanding, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And here we have what I'm calling the stewardship of the kingdom. And we see this in two ways. We see this in the disciples' treasure, and we see this in their task. Now, I want you to follow closely because this can be, there's some ambiguity here. There's, there's, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty as far as exactly what all of this means. But I want to try to explain it to you how I understand it. And of course, you may or may not uh, agree with all the things that I, that I see there. And that's fine. I've been wrong many times before. And I'm certainly ready to be wrong again. But this is how I understand it. Notice that Jesus makes another comparison here, and some people will call this a parable, but I, I, I just I want to just point out that it, it is a comparison, and he says that every scribe is like a master of a house. Okay, now I don't think that Jesus is referring to the actual scribes of that day, but instead he's referring to his disciples. He's referring to these guys because, in a sense, they had become the scribes of the kingdom. 
the scribes of Israel, the Jewish scribes, the ones that we read about, the scribes and the Pharisees that were giving Jesus all kinds of problems, their job, their, their task was to study, to interpret, and to teach the law. That's what they were there for. That's what their purpose was, to know the law, to be able to understand the law, and then to be able to explain the law in a way that made sense. They were to teach the application of it. So if anyone understood the law, and anybody understood what it meant, it was supposed to be the scribes. Now, of course, we see that they missed a lot of that, but in that, in that time, that was what their job was to do, is to understand all these things. They were considered the experts. And I think that Jesus is, is, is saying here that the disciples, the, mainly, mainly the twelve, but we'll get to that a little bit more in a minute, that they are becoming the scribes who are trained for the kingdom. Another way to read this is every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom. So as the disciples understood what Jesus was teaching, they were becoming scribes of the kingdom. Richard France uh, explained it like this. He says, they were, for, they were for the kingdom of heaven what the scribes were for Israel. They were able to teach others the way of God. And the difference is that where, in the, where the scribes of Israel could only produce what was old, all they had was the law, and all they could do was explain what had already been said, these new scribes of the kingdom would be able to produce not just the old, but also the new. That's what he gets to at the end of his, at the end of the passage there, brings out treasure new and old. Another writer explains, they will be drawing out the meaning of the Hebrew scriptures, those are the old things, while showing how they are fulfilled and apply in the kingdom age, the, the new things. Now remember back in verse 45, Jesus compared the kingdom to a treasure. He said the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. He said the kingdom of, the kingdom of heaven is like a man in search of fine pearls, and he finds the, the pearl of great, of great price. Now the disciples would possess that treasure and, he, and, and be entrusted to handle it wisely. That's how I understand the last half of his comparison. He says, because he says that every scribe of the kingdom, uh, every scribe who's been, uh, been trained for the kingdom is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So this master of the house is, is, is a way to describe the head of the household. We see this, this uh, phrase uh, used throughout the scriptures uh, in parables and in, and, in, uh, and just in titles of people. And it, and it is essentially it describes the man of the house. You know, when I leave for a trip, I tell my boys, I usually start with the oldest, and then I include the youngest. I say, you're the man of the house, you're in charge now, but you still have to do what mom says. And then I tell his brother that too. But you know, if, if someone breaks in, it's your job to uh, stop them and uh, put a lot of pressure on them because I want them to think that I have a big job to do. Uh, but that's, that's what the head of the household does. And as the head of the house, it is my job to make sure that my family is fed, my family has all their needs met, right? Uh, I don't look to my kids and say, what are we going to do? It's dinner time and I didn't see anything in the cupboards. They look to me for that. Uh, hey, I don't go to my, my son and say, Riley, my, my clothes are getting old and worn. I need you to get some new clothes for me. Uh, they look to me for that. Actually, I look to them and say, you need to get some new clothes. But it's my job is to, to, to have the responsibility of those within my house. I am the master of the house. And we read all kinds of responsibilities as pertains to the master of the house. Uh, but Jesus says that the master of the house is the one responsible for taking care of everyone that lived there. And there, this person is in charge of the treasure. All right. And, and the, and the treasure here is described as both old 
and new. So the disciples' treasure is the mysteries of the kingdom. And back in verse 11, all the way back to chapter 13, verse 11, Jesus told the disciples, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven. But to them it has not been given. For to, the, for to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. And Jesus taught these men uh, publicly and privately. He explained the parables to them privately. And as they understood it, they became stewards of the mysteries of the kingdom. Another, another writer, uh, D.A. Carson, he wrote, Jesus explains the parables to his disciples in private. They are to bring out of their treasure rooms new things and old. Thus, they are to understand the antecedent scriptures correctly and show how they point to Jesus the Messiah and the dawning of the promised kingdom. So, like good scribes, they were to understand the treasures and the mysteries of the kingdom. Like masters of the house, they were responsible to properly steward those treasures and bring out things that are both new and old. The old truths and the new truths. Old truths in new forms, in new aspects, with new understanding and application. By calling them scribes, he was implying to them that they have a responsibility to teach others what they understand themselves. They were to be trained for the kingdom, to learn its truths and its mysteries, to be, and then be able to understand them and interpret them, but then they were to share them with other people. These truths were not simply for their own enjoyment. They didn't learn it so they could become really smart and know everything. They were expected to bring out of their treasure things new and old. So, why teach a parable on judgment and hell? I think because these guys were the ones who were going to carry on the mission when Christ left. They were the ones responsible for spreading the gospel message. They would be the next generation, if you will, to pass on the treasures they had received from Christ to other people. Jesus had told them in Matthew 10, He says, what I tell you in secret, proclaim on the housetops. And here is a perfect example. What He has told them in secret, they were now tasked with proclaiming to all. And I also think that their understanding of the kingdom would, or at least should, affect them. It should affect them inwardly, realizing the great worth of the treasures of the kingdom, but also it would affect them outwardly, that they would distribute these things and care for their household with it and, and spread it across the world. You know, as I think about specifically about this, this final parable, as they listen to what's going to happen to those who reject Christ, I think it should move them and as it should move us to say, you know, I want to make sure people know that they need to receive Christ instead of reject Christ because the end is not good. And it would affect them to do something with what they have rather than say, well, glad it's not going to be me. They did something besides that. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. And I think in that way, it applies to us. We're not apostles, and I'm not saying that we have some apostolic authority as they did, but I am saying that the things that Jesus passed down to the apostles were passed down to other people, like Timothy, who have, over time, it's been passed down to us. And like it was entrusted to Timothy, who was then responsible to not only keep it, but to pass it on, it is given to us to pass down to future generations. 
So we must be faithful with the treasures that are entrusted to us. And so let me briefly, in just the last five minutes that we have, share two ways I think that we can do that. Number one, strive to understand God's Word. Strive to properly understand God's Word. It holds the mysteries of the kingdom. As we study these things and we're, we're learning about these things, if you're going to, 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 uh, to, to, to apply these truths, you've got to first understand what they mean. Second Peter 3 uh, says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises. Make it your goal to understand everything you can about God's Word. I'm not saying you're going to understand everything there is to know about God's Word, but don't be satisfied with the level of understanding that you have today. Continue to learn and continue to grow because you cannot really treasure what you don't understand and you cannot really teach or share what you don't really understand. So how can we do this? Very very quickly. Maybe we'll talk about this a little bit more tonight. What are some ways that I can uh, properly understand or work towards properly understanding God's Word? One, of course, it starts with reading and studying the Scriptures. If you're going to understand it, you got to read it. And you got to do more than read it. you got to study it. Uh, If you've grown up in church, you know you're supposed to read your Bible. But do you know that the Bible doesn't actually tell us to read the Bible? It tells us to study it. It tells us to obey it, and you can't do those things without reading it. But just simply reading it so that you got your checkbox full and you finished it for the year doesn't do anything. You've got you've to know it. But So it starts with there. And of course, prayer. Jesus said that the mysteries of the kingdom had been given to the disciples. And so these aren't things that I gain on my own. I, I trust Christ and I, and I seek His wisdom. James says if you, if you lack wisdom, ask God. He gives it to you liberally. And so pray for understanding as you read and study. But then read other books about the Scriptures. Read uh, the, 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 the teaching that other people have, have given on these types of things. Take notes as you're reading through your, your Bible or as you come to church, as you listen, take notes, write things down. Just the very fact that you're writing it down is ingraining that a little bit deeper in your heart and your mind. Talk about it with other people. It's a great way to, it's one thing to hear it and then say, do you understand? Yes. Okay, if you've ever been in school, uh, and hopefully all of us have at one point or another, either on as the teacher or as a student, but you know, you say, class, do you get this? Yes. And then they say, all right, explain to the class what we just talked about, and the kid can't understand. Because it's one thing to hear it and get it. It's another thing to say it and get it. Uh, there's, there's an old saying that the person who does the work is the person who's doing the learning. And so as you hear things, figure out how to say them again in different words to someone else because as you put in that work, you've, be, you've kind of solidified that teaching in your mind. So talk with others about it. And by doing these types of things, you put yourself in a position where you can continue to learn God's Word and understand God's Word. And you know, sometimes, and it happens with me too, I, I think about something, I say something, and then I realize that was totally not the right thing. It happens like every Sunday, okay? And, 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 that, and that's fine. But if I never went through that, I wouldn't, I wouldn't get the right things. I wouldn't understand the right way. So uh, properly understand God's Word. And the second thing, strive to properly steward God's Word. 
we don't study God's word just so that we can be smart about it, so that we can be the, the, the walking Bible encyclopedia. If you have a question, ask Jim over there because he knows. And we have a Jim. I'm talking about that Jim. But, you know, uh, that's not the point. That's, that's wonderful if you know, you know, what the, the little toe on the golden statue in Daniel meant. But it's not there so that you can figure it out. It's there for a bigger reason. We study so that we might grow in grace. So that we might grow in the knowledge of our Lord. But we also study so that we might help others. So that we might pass these things on to other people. And if we are like the scribes of the trained in the kingdom like Jesus is referring to the disciples, then we too have a responsibility to bring forth from our treasures the things that we understand. We have a responsibility to bring forth those things. And for some of us, that looks like an official teaching ministry. I mean, that's, that's kind of like my job, to study the Scriptures and try to understand them and then explain them in a way that makes sense to you and not just makes sense to me. And you can be the judge on how well I'm doing that. But that, that's what it looks like for those of you maybe who teach Sunday school or maybe you preach in Phil Pulpits. We have several men that do that within the church. And, and, and that's, that's great, but that's not the only way. Your workplace might be the house that you are entrusted with to make sure that the treasures are being distributed properly. Your family dinner table might be the place where you bring forth treasures both new and old. Your weekly get-together with friends. All of these types of places are opportunities for us to properly steward the Word. What am I doing with the Word of God? Am I leaving it for Sunday and then never bringing it out again anywhere else? That's not good stewardship. Because the point of this is not just simply to get it so that we got it. The point is to get it so we can give it. How are our children going to do this one day? I believe that God's will will be done and God will do what He... But I believe that part of God's will is for us to pass down to our children and to others what we know and understand. Properly stewarding God's Word. So as we reflect on all of Jesus' parables, there's two big things that we, we, we want to come out of this. Number one, make sure you understand the message of the kingdom. Make sure you have received Christ. Don't just hear these words and, and see them as little cute stories that have cute little morals for Sunday school. Morals for life. These are the words of eternal life. But then number two, once you've received that, once you've understood that, once you've made that your own, then make sure that you're not keeping that to yourself. Because there's a world full of people out there and they're being gathered to the kingdom even as we speak. And one day, we will all stand before God. And we will either be seen as righteous or evil. If we're seen as righteous, we have nothing but joy awaiting us. But nobody's righteous accidentally. Nobody becomes righteous by default. We must believe they must be, and Paul says, how will they believe unless someone tells them? One day they will stand before God. And when the net is drawn, it will be too late. So let us make sure that we understand.
and we have received. And then make sure that those around us at least have the opportunity to know what the reality is, what, what is coming. Whether or not they're going to believe, whether or not they're going to receive it, whether or not they're going to even understand it as you say it, at least let them know. 